before God and as we're reminded of His greatness and, and uh, how we are to reflect that greatness in our lives and how often we fail, uh, let's just come before Him and, and acknowledge that. Lord, thank You, uh, Father, that we can come before You despite, as uh, Daryl shared with us earlier, dis- despite our failures and times we mess up, uh, Lord, that You invite us into Your presence because of the blood of Jesus. And uh, Lord, we acknowledge Your greatness. You are a good God. You're a great God. And uh, Lord, our lives don't always reflect it. And I pray this morning, even as we consider uh, the topic today, God, that You would uh, give us insight and wisdom on how we can better reflect Your greatness to those around us. And uh, Lord, that uh, we can get out of the way and let You work through us uh, so that people see Your Son and what He has done and uh, have a desire to know Him. And so, Lord, that's my prayer this morning, that through what is said now, that uh, Your Son Jesus would be lifted up. Uh, Lord, that we would see the things in our life that we need to deal with. Lord, I pray for clarity, and I pray for honesty amongst those who hear, and a willingness to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I grew up uh, in Toronto or just outside of Toronto for probably, I guess, the first 40-something years of my life. And, and having moved to a hobby farm that's surrounded by other farms and surrounded by bush and the Ganaraska Forest across the, the, the road from us, I've learned to accept that there are just certain realities of living in the country uh, that you just don't get. Uh, in the city. And, and for some of you who have grown up and you only know the country, this is just a way of life, some of the things I've said. Some of you who have grown up in the city and moved to a country location, you can probably list a bunch of different things that you never thought about in the city that are just realities of life uh, in the country. But uh, it's something like as simple as the fact that spread manure in the heat of the summer really smells. And that's a reality of our life because right beside us there's a large field that a farmer seems to be able to find lots of manure to spread uh, every year. I've realized that baby cows and mama cows do not like being separated and they really let you know that in the middle of the night. Uh, So we hear that often. Uh, I've learned that coyotes, although they may be quite a distance away at 3 o'clock in the morning, sound like they are just right outside your window. Uh, I've learned that just because you have fences around your pasture doesn't mean the animals actually stay on the side of the fence you want them to. Uh, And then another reality, and as I said, I could probably list all sorts of them. The last one is that it's near impossible to keep weeds off your lawn. And like in the city, there was the odd dandelion. And back when I lived in the city, you could spray it with, I don't know, some kind of chemical warfare. And it got rid of everything. You're not allowed to do that. Especially if you're near farms, you're really not allowed to do that. And so we fight dandelions and milkweed. And the new one, my new favorite invasive weed, dogweed, which is everywhere and grows and climbs up everywhere. And I marvel at how I can cut my grass. And I'll, I'll, in the summer, I'll go, okay, my grass needs to be cut. And I'll get the lawn tractor out there, and it's covered in dandelions. And I go, you know what? I'm going to lower the blade as low as it goes, and I'm going to teach those dandelions a lesson. 
And I go out there and I carve up everything. And there's no grass and it appears there's no dandelions. Uh, and then the next morning I wake up and I look out the window and there's still no grass because I've cut it all. But all these dandelions have popped back up and they just don't, they don't want to go away and they just keep showing up in, in new places. And then I'm reminded of when I was a kid and how I used to pick up the white fluffy dandelion and I would blow it and, and the seeds would spread everywhere. And just get caught up by the wind. And I realized the reason that dandelions, dogweed, milkweed, and whatever other weeds you can think of that are in that category, the reason they're everywhere is because by their very nature, they're designed to spread and to multiply. And I can think of a lot of negative things about weeds, and uh, we probably don't think about a whole lot of positive things about weeds, But there is something positive about weeds. And that is that you can get a great object lesson for the gospel. Because the gospel, by its very nature, is designed to spread and to multiply. And you only have to look at the gospels and and read the accounts of Jesus and His ministry to see that news about Jesus and what He was doing spread like wildfire. Even with Jesus trying to temper the excitement, his fame and his, his healing spread from, from person to person and family to family and, and town to town. It's kind of like that mature milkweed that is out in my field that, that scatters its seeds into the wind and it takes root wherever that seed lands. That, that was what it was like for Jesus and the news about him and what he was doing. And we might say, okay, but that was Jesus. But we go from the Gospels and we go into the book of Acts. And we read of how the Word of God spread in a similar fashion. I just wrote a couple of the uh, verses down. Acts 12, 24. But the Word of God continued to spread and to flourish. 13, 49. uh, Verse 49. The Word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. 19, verse 20. The Word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so the question I want to begin with this morning is, if... The good news about Jesus, the gospel, and the Word of God, inherently by its very nature, spreads and multiplies by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that some of us find it difficult to share that very same good news? Why don't we share the good news of Jesus and and how the Word of God has, has impacted our lives as often as we could. That brings us to the series that we've been looking at all November, and that question that appears on your bulletin every week. If Jesus said go, why do I say no? Or why do I so often say no? And, and, and over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at obstacles, reasons why, excuses perhaps, of why we don't share our faith as often as we, we could and, and, and as often as we should. And, and if you remember back the first two weeks, I, I looked at the, the fact that I think for some of us we've forgotten or we've misunderstood or we just need to be reminded once again of what our per, true purpose is as followers of Jesus. That, that we have been called to be disciple makers, to be representatives, to be messengers of the good news of Jesus. and If we were left here just to fellowship or to worship or to learn or to pray, we could do all those things better in the presence of our Savior. 
And he would zap us up one at a time as we give our life to Jesus. Come up with me. Come up. But no, he's, he's left us here on earth for a purpose because he's passed the baton, the baton of the gospel. And he's called us, you and I as followers of Jesus, to be disciple makers. And then we looked at last week that perhaps the reason that we don't share our faith as often as we should is, is the message itself. And so, and so we looked at the gospel. And, and perhaps there's parts of the gospel message in its fullness that, that cause us to hesitate, to be afraid, to, to, to be wary of, of what the response might be from those we are sharing our faith with. Uh, or maybe we just don't really have a good handle on what the full gospel message is. And so we hesitate to share it. Or maybe we just need to be reminded of what it was like for us before we knew Jesus as our Savior. And we looked at Ephesians 2 right near the very end of our passage. And, and uh, Mel, you didn't know I was going to do this, but Mel just passed something on to Allison, I think to pass on to me, uh, uh, from a, a devotional. And I just thought it was fantastic. And, and I'm assuming that these are to be read as the words of Jesus. But let me just read the last uh, uh, half of this devotional that the Mel passed on. This is, this is Jesus speaking to us. The gospel radiates pure, powerful light that illuminates my glory, the wonder of who I am and what I have done. This good news has unlimited power to transform lives from despair to delight. All my children, filled with my spirit, are well equipped to be light bearers, shining gospel brightness into the lives of others. I want you to join in this glorious venture using your gifts and the opportunities I provide. I know you are weak. But that fits my purposes perfectly. My power is most effective in your weakness. Thanks, Mel, for, for passing that on. And so that's what we looked at last week. And then today I want to look at a couple of related obstacles uh, to our faith and then suggest, as we get a little further into it, what might be the root cause uh, of these obstacles uh, to sharing our faith. Chuck Lawless, who is a uh, professor, uh, an evangelist, a uh, scholar, uh, a blogger, uh, he is an expert uh, on missions, on evangelism, on church growth. He's connected with the uh, uh, Southern Baptists, uh, has, has lots of great material, has done lots of surveys and polls. Uh, he conducted what he calls a, a, an unofficial poll. It was a Twitter poll. Uh, and he really wanted to test his premise out uh, on his readers. And his premise was this, that churches today and Christians today are less evangelistic than churches and Christians of the past. And so he threw that out to his readers of his blog, or, on, or Twitter, I guess, uh, and, and just simply asked the question, do you agree? And if you agree, why do you think it's the case? Why are Christians, why are churches, why are church members not as evangelistic as they used to be, as, as they were in the past? And he was totally floored with the response and the number of responses that he got uh, in affirmation of his premise uh, and just the number of responses to his question. And so he put together a list of 15 reasons why uh, people feel that Christians and, and, and churches in general don't uh, evangelize as well as they did in the past. And, and the top three reasons were this. One is that many Christians and church members lack a sense of urgency to reach the lost. Secondly, 
many Christians fail to befriend or interact with those who don't know Jesus. And the third, that just simply, a lot of Christians are lazy and apathetic. And you know, I read these 15 uh, reasons and I as, as I went through them, I, I could see there was a common thread that permeated through these 15 reasons. And it was apathy and a lack of compassion. And i got to say up front, because I've said it right along and all along, is that the purpose of this series is just to be honest. What are some of those things that keep us from sharing our faith and to, to be willing to admit them and, and to see what Scripture could say to us about them? And, and then to pray that we could, we could be changed. And I recognize right up front, talking about apathy and lack of compassion is not a real popular topic. For me to suggest that some of you, or many of us, me included, might show tendencies of apathy and lack of compassion is not a real sensitive thing from the platform. I learned a long time ago that yelling and raising my voice, sometimes I raise my voice when I'm excited, but to, to yell at you and to scream at you to, to evoke life change is not a real effective method. It's better to just tell people about the love of Jesus and let that change them. Uh, and it's, just, it's kind of how I feel about things like apathy and, and, and lack of compassion. So I'm just asking that we can just have an open, honest discussion, although you're probably just going to be listening to me talk. <laughs> and, and, and just see if some of this resonates with you. And then, as I said, I want to suggest what might be the root of some of this. And I think most of you will come on board by then. But let's, let's talk about apathy. And let me just start with a, 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 the, de- the uh, dictionary definition of apathy. The la- apathy is the lack of enthusiasm, passion, or energy in the interest in anything or the absence of any wish to do anything. And I think the synonyms of uh, apathy are, are, are even more telling. Words like indifference, lack of concern or interest, laziness, boredom. Now let me just share a couple of quotes uh, that I've come across concerning apathy. This one here, besides fear, apathy is probably the only other killer of evangelism today. Or this one... Uh, from Oswald Chambers. All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. And then finally, as a Christian, don't you have a desire to see six billion people saved? Aren't you challenged to see that come to pass? With two people dying every second, it's 150,000 per day. Doesn't that seem like an overwhelmingly important task? Even if you have family and friends who are unsaved, wouldn't you like to spend eternity with them and be assured they are saved? So why do we feel apathy much of our lives? And I got to admit, those quotes are hard to hear. And you may not even agree to the extent that those quotes go. Uh, you may think that they're really harsh. It, it makes us sound like we don't even care about people who are lost. But if I was to ask you, 
does our way that we live our life and the priorities we have reflect a great concern for the lost? Would you have to agree that maybe there's some truth in some of those quotes? Because I do. I mean, if you were to take a look at your... your, your I'm, I'm in the printing industry, so if you were to look at your day timer that's printed on paper, uh, but if you were to look at your calendar for the last week, just, just think about it. What, what, what your last week entailed. What were your priorities? What were the non-negotiables in your schedule? And then when you had downtime, what did you spend your time doing? What what were you envisioning, daydreaming about, planning for? How many of us intentionally interact and connect with those who don't know Jesus? And I'm not talking about a you know passing by a friend in the hall at school or you know at the at the coffee station at work with a a coworker. I'm I'm talking about an intentional connection where you're sharing life together. Maybe a good question would be, when's the last time you intentionally invited someone who doesn't know Jesus into your home? Think about, think about the connections and interactions you've had in the last week, the last month. How many of us intentionally pray for those who don't know Jesus who are in our sphere of influence and pray that, that we would have opportunities to share Christ and I'm glad that there's a number of you who have who've shared that you have actually been doing that and you've been encouraged to do so. But I had to challenge myself. How often is prayer even the place I go when I think about sharing my faith? And yet prayer is so essential to evangelism. In fact, I think, I think that lack of prayer is a symptom of, of, of apathy and, and lack of compassion. They, kind of like a vicious circle. Specifically praying, as the Bible tells us, that that God would raise up people that had the similar desire. That we would have a desire to share our faith. That God would give us boldness. He would give us the things to say. He'd give us opportunities. That He would bind Satan. That He would give us what we need as we go about fulfilling the calling that He has given to us. How many of us have non-Christian friends? I have to say to myself that maybe there is some truth in those quotes. Because when I look at the way that I live my daily life, those who are lost are no way near a high priority as they should be. And so there was apathy and then there was this lack of compassion. And so a definition from the dictionary of compassion is sympathetic pity. Concern for the sufferings and misfortunes of others and a desire to alleviate it. And compassion is essential to sharing our faith. It motivates us to speak and to, to teach and to pray and to serve and to do whatever is necessary to see those who are lost come to know Jesus. It's, it's compassion that drives us to our knees to, to pray for those who are lost. And, and it keeps us on our knees crying to God that He would save them. I think of uh, Paul in Romans. I just wrote these, these uh, things out in Romans 10 verse 1. Just listen to his compassion 
for those who are lost that were in His sphere of influence. In Romans 10, verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And then I think even greater in Romans 9, 2 and 3, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish myself, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Is that the kind of compassion that fuels our sharing of our faith? Last week we looked at Ephesians 2 and and, uh, Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that this is what we used to be before Christ. And, and, and for some of us, that's, that's just theology. I was six when I came to Christ. I don't really remember being this horrible sinner, although since coming to Christ, I've tried to prove it a few times that I can be that way. But that's what we used to be. But, but then God sent Jesus, took our place, did all those things we talked about last week for us, and we were saved and, and we've been declared righteous and, and innocent. And then Paul says, remember. Remember. Bring it to mind consistently and constantly. This is what you used to be. Now this is what you are. Before, you had no hope. You had no right relationship with Jesus. You had no eternal life. You had no forgiveness of sin. That's what you were. And I probably some of you need to be reminded of that time and time again. Because there's so many times that I don't connect the dots. I don't connect the dots that the people that I am rubbing shoulders with day after day that don't know Jesus, they don't have the hope I have. They don't have the true joy and peace that I have. They don't have a right relationship with God like I have. They haven't had their sins forgiven. And then we come to passages like 1 Thessalonians, or sorry, 2 Thessalonians. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just who will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. How often we don't think of those words. How often we want to just skip past 2 Thessalonians. That's the part of the Gospel that, that we're afraid is too much of an offense. That there is a penalty for not dealing with your sin. And how often I don't think about those words. And so you may be listening and saying, I think that's unfair that you would question my lack of compassion. But how often do we cry out to God for the salvation of the lost, of the people that we know? This week, and this was not the first time it's happened, 
And uh, I, I thought Allison was going to be upstairs today. She's teaching Sunday school. And I was going to have to be really careful with how I said this. She's downstairs. I don't have to be quite as careful, but I'll still try to be careful uh, of how I say this. I was downstairs working in my office, and uh, it was a crazy, busy day. I had all sorts of things going on. And she finished work uh, early, uh, I think it was Thursday, and uh, she came downstairs, and uh, she had a few things that she needed to go over with me, which when she comes downstairs, I'm hoping she's going to the freezer to grab something and go back upstairs, because I didn't want to be disturbed. But she had four or five things that she wanted to talk about, and one was to do with one of the kids, and, and uh, that they were going to be home soon, and, and felt that I needed to deal with that right then, and I'm going, I like... I got, like it's 3.30 in the afternoon. I got things I got to do. But you're a dad. And then she reminded me of some things that I need to do for my personal health and some appointments I need to make. And have you called so-and-so? No, not yet. I'm like, it's been crazy. I got one thing after another. You got to make those phone calls. Then she reminded me of a couple of things that are needed to be done around the house. And it's the firewood coming and, and a couple of other things. And now I haven't done those either. And, and uh, she left. <laughs> and and I, I sat there going, like, I, like, you don't get it, Allison. Like, I am, I am being pulled in so many different directions. I'm thinking about what sermon I'm doing on Sunday. I've got these quotes I've got to do for customers. I've got jobs on the go. This, that, and another thing. And you want me to do this, that. And I realized, and it was not my intention, but she left, and I felt like, man, I'm a lousy father. That wasn't my intention. My intention is to be a great father. But that's how I was coming across as not the best parent. And, and I want to look after myself, but I'm coming across as someone who is not really looking after themselves. And it was not my intention to be a lousy maintainer of our house. But that's how it was coming across. And I realize it's because I am pulled in so many directions. And maybe you feel that it's unfair that apathy and lacking compassion might be characteristics that are true to an extent in your life. And yet, you've listened to what I've said about apathy, and you've listened to what I've said about lacking compassion, and there's parts of it that, if you're being honest, you probably go, yeah, I can, I can see that. I can see where there's seasons of apathy and seasons of lack of compassion in my life. And what's at the root of apathy? And what's at the, what's at the root of a lack of compassion? Why do we find ourselves in seasons of life where we are indifferent when it comes to sharing our faith and the things of God? Why is it that there are seasons in our life where it, would be, it, it, it seems evident that we're not as compassionate as we might be? And the psalmist would say that the root of those things is a divided heart. That our heart reflects a life that is scattered in a thousand different directions. And our heart is fragmented because it's pulled in so many different directions. And don't get me wrong, having an undivided heart is not an easy thing. 
And we live in a world that makes it really tough. Because the world entices us with things that distract us and pull us in its direction and we follow it and some of those things turn out to be real trash. But there's a lot of things in this world that in and of themselves aren't bad and they entice us and we follow it and it becomes our priority and we become consumed with it. And then we fail to live up to the priorities and and. and passions and treasures that as followers of Jesus we were meant to have. The, the, the psalm that, that the worship team shared with us, Psalm 86, it, it provides a solution for us. And I was kind of hoping I'd get to Psalm 86 a little before, a few minutes before I want to end. But that is, that is a psalm and, and turn to it. That's a psalm that I want to introduce some of you to if you've never been to it. Uh, It's a psalm I want to reintroduce some of you to if you've been there but you've forgotten it. It is a wonderful psalm. It's a psalm of David. It's the only psalm of David's in the last, the third book of the Psalms. And it is a heartfelt cry of a man of God who knew his God well and yet found himself in, in, in a terrible situation. We don't even really know what the details of the situation is, but this psalm is made up of 15 requests. It's just bang, 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 bang with a real sense of urgency. And as you walk through the psalm, you see so much of David's heart and the God whom he serves in this one-way dialogue, but we learn so much about God from what David is saying. And we get to verse 11 and 12. And, and that's where I want you to camp out just for a few minutes. David says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart, that undivided heart. I will glorify your name forever. And so David prays to God that he would teach him. God, teach me your ways. Teach me your priorities. Teach me your, your passions. Teach me those things that matter most to you. Teach me those things so that I can walk in obedience to your way. And David says, give me an undivided heart. If you don't have a fridge magnet on your fridge, that would be a good one. Every morning, God, give me an undivided heart. May I have undivided loyalty. May I have single-mindedness in purpose. You see, David wanted to be wholly devoted to God. And the result is that he would then fear and have reverence for God. And that's where I think there's a disconnect. We talked about a disconnect in the, at the very first sermon. That there was a disconnect about what we say we believe about sharing our faith and what we actually do. I think there's another disconnect. There's a disconnect between God's heart and our heart. God's priorities and our priorities. God's passions, the things that matter most to Him, and the things that matter most to us and, and what our priorities are. And we need, we, we need to make a connection. And there's, there's indicators of a divided heart. 
And one of them is our loyalties. You want to know if you have a divided heart? You'll see that you have, uh, you have swerving loyalties, kind of moving from one target to the next. You find it hard to make commitments. And when you do promise something, often you go back on it and give excuses. You find it hard being on one team without switching over to the more popular team. There's the passage in 1 Chronicles, and unless you're reading the one in your Bible, you probably don't find yourself in 1 Chronicles 12 very often. But it's talking about all the warriors that joined David before he was king, when it became quite evident that God's hand was upon David and not Saul. And so it talks about all these warriors that were coming to David's side to, to help the Lord uh, bring about His plan. And uh, way down in verse 33, it says, it talks about the tribe of Zebulun. It says, from Zebulun, experienced soldiers prepared for battle with every type of weapon to help David. These were top-notch warriors. They had all the goods. They had all the resources. Those were the kind of men that you wanted fighting on your side. But that wasn't their greatest quality. The chronicler makes it quite evident what their greatest quality is. They had all the weapons. They were prepared for battle. But they came to help David with undivided loyalty. And that word undivided in the Hebrew is a real strange word. It's no heart heart. No double-heartedness. They came to David with a single-heartedness. They had made a choice. They weren't partly with David and partly with Saul. They were fully with David. And whatever David said, wherever David asked them to go, they were going to follow because they had undivided loyalty. And so when Jesus says, go, do we say no? Do we have a, a double-minded heart or do we have a no-hard heart, a single-minded heart? Another mark of a divided heart is, is divided priorities, and, and I think that's an easy one for us to understand, that uh, we have interests and pursuits and passions that, that become our priorities, but are, 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 they, are they the priorities of God, the, the priorities that God would have for us? And I know for myself, I can spend so much time building my own kingdom and securing it and equipping it and strengthening it that I neglect God's kingdom. And so it's like a tug of war. And this tug of war, when we let, we allow ourselves to be divided, it shows up. It shows up in apathy. It shows up in lack of compassion. It shows up in our uh, unwillingness to, to share the gospel in, in difficult situations. And, and it's kind of like a tug-of-war. And I used to love tug-of-war 30 years ago. And in fact, when I was at Crusaders Bible Club camp on staff in Omimi, I was the king of tug-of-war. No one could beat me at tug-of-war. I could take on cabins of boys versus me, I would win. 
And to me, there was no greater feeling than pulling and watching another counselor, another two counselors, or a cabin of boys come and come, and eventually a couple would give up, and the other ones go flat in their face right into the mud pit. It was great. (laughs) But not so much a tug of war when it's my heart, which is what's being tugged. And God's on the one end of that rope, and He's tugging, but ever so gently. Because He's not going to tug against my will. And I imagine this rope, which is my heart, and on God's tugging gently, and on the other side of that rope is all the enticements of the world, all the treasures of the world, all, all the things that I could find myself being involved in, all my wrong priorities, tugging the rope the other way. But as I look real closely and I start peeling the onion, of all those things on the other end of the rope, there's only one thing left. And it's me. And I'm pulling on the other end of that rope. And if we want apathy and lack of compassion, and I'm sure amongst a bunch of other things, to just go away or to be minimized, we've got to pray that prayer that David prayed. God, give me a united heart. Give me an undivided heart. Give me a heart that is single-minded, of single purpose. And I don't know if that's your desire this morning, but if it is, I, w- I want to share a prayer with you that was shared with me. I just want everyone just to close their eyes and bow your head. And we're not going to, I'm not asking you to do anything crazy. But, but if this is something that, that, that you would desire and that you want to symbolize to God, that God, I want an undivided heart, stand as I read the prayer so that this could be especially uh, for you. And, and, and here's the prayer. And, and as I said, stand if this is something that you want God to know that this is something that you really want. Lord Jesus, I need to hear these ancient words once again. Unite my heart to fear Your name. I'm so scattered, Lord, pulled in so many directions, so easily distracted. How quickly I forget who You are. How quickly I forget Your goodness to me. Unite my heart, Lord. Put it back together again. Refocus my thoughts. Clarify my purpose. Grant that I should want You more than anything else. Thank You for Your many gifts freely given. Forgive me for loving Your gifts more than I love You. In confessing this, I ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name. Here is my heart, Lord. Come in and rearrange things. Make me new from the inside out. Thank You for loving me even when I seem to lose my way. I love you, Lord. Do your work in me. Unite my heart to fear your name. Amen.